Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Mercedes Stevenson here with a special year-end conversation with the Prime Minister. It's been quite a year for Justin Trudeau, from the affordability crisis to questions about his own political leadership. And then there were the national security and foreign policy challenges that he had to contend with. I sat down with the Prime Minister a week before Christmas. Here's our conversation. Prime Minister, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Mercedes. It is Christmas time, and it's, it's a tough time for a lot of people this time of year, and I imagine maybe a bit of a tough time for you. You've had a tough year, politically, personally. How are you doing? But that's the question we're always asking each other. Right now, times are tough for everyone, and that's why... Uh, Really, we see the best of Canadians coming forward at this moment as people continue to to roll up their sleeves and lean in for each other, even as though, even while everything is challenging. And, and, yeah, I think this is a moment uh, at the holidays when everyone's going to be pulling together and uh, reflecting on, uh, hopefully, a much better year in 2024. Your polls would indicate that you're not heading for a better year. Seven out of ten Canadians want you to step down. There was a recent poll saying that Christian Freeland and Mark Carney were both more popular choices than you to lead the Liberal Party. Why do you think Canadians are so frustrated with you? Well, I think, first of all, it's a really frustrating time, full stop. There is so much going on around the world. There's so much impacting us here at home. There's so many challenges people are facing in their daily lives, from groceries to, to rent, that... Um, Yeah, there's a lot of frustration, but we have been working incredibly hard to deliver for Canadians in really concrete ways. And to my mind, this is exactly not the time to be slowing down or to stop fighting for people. We have been focused on delivering for Canadians for eight years now. And the context we're in right now where progress has become so fragile because of global and large macro events is the time to be doubling down and rolling up our sleeves. And that's what I'm here for. And I understand wanting to advance that agenda and that it's, it's hard to let go of being in power once you're in. But historically, Canadian prime ministers don't get elected four times in a row and people are being very clear that they don't like you in these polls. People are frustrated right now but on a personal level I made a commitment in 2015 to a whole bunch of young people who came out to vote for the very very first time that we were going to be doing the right kinds of things to secure the promise of this country in a way that people were worried about and Years later, even with everything we've done on the environment, on inclusion, on gender equality, on on growing the economy, on reconciliation, those young people, eight years later, are having trouble paying their rent, worried about their future in ways that are just as tangible, if not more, because of the global context we're in. And I didn't make a promise that I was going to make things better for them and then walk away after four years or even after eight years. I said I'd be there to fight for them every single day. Even if That's they what don't I'm doing want you there. there. Listen, there'll be an election eventually in which people get to make that choice. But I am not giving up on them. I'm not giving up on Canada. I'm not giving up on the progressive vision of progress that we've been fighting for every single day over the past years. Let's talk about housing because it's, it's something that affects everyone. And there's been a lot of 
uh, struggle in every Canadian city, every Canadian province, to try to find affordable housing. One of the issues which your government has recognized is that there's more people than there is housing necessary. There is, I, I believe, a need for 3.5 million homes by the end of the decade. You've promised 30,000. It's only 1% of the supply. Why so low? On the contrary, we've actually made commitments that are adding up to about to 300,000 new units uh, over the coming decade. These are the kinds of things we need to accelerate, and there's no one way of doing it. What we've come at is not a single silver bullet, but a, a massive range of of initiatives, whether it's the first home savings account that 300,000 people have used uh, to start being able to save up for a down payment, whether it's the rapid housing initiative uh, that has quickly got things up and running across the country, whether it's the housing accelerator uh, that is securing deals with cities that are transforming their zoning, zoning, transforming densification so they're building more places near public transit to create more livable cities and communities. And those things are starting to land and and they will just accelerate over the coming years. On housing, one of the big issues has been whether there is enough for those who are being welcomed into Canada. Uh, in the most recent survey we saw, more people came into Canada in the last quarter than since 1957. And yet your government is also acknowledging that there's not enough housing. Do you think that you bear some responsibility for the housing crisis based on your policies? Oh, we absolutely have to be part of solving for this. But let's be clear about the numbers we're seeing. Uh, only about a quarter of those numbers are the federal permanent resident uh, um, immigration numbers. Three quarters of those numbers are actually in three categories. Asylum seekers who are arriving regularly, international students where there's been an amazing spike in that, a, a concerning spike in that, uh, and temporary foreign workers as well that are needed for, for growing our economy, for working in our businesses. And on all three of those, we have specific plans on it. We're working with international partners on the asylum seekers. Uh, we're making sure that institutions across the country as they get accredited by the provinces are both legitimate institutions because we've seen some some fraud and some sketchy practices there but are also able to house the international students that are coming so we're not putting pressures on communities and around uh, temporary workers making sure that employees and employers uh, employers have a role in ensuring housing if they absolutely need to bring in foreign workers they have to make sure that there's going to be housing for them as well I just want to go back to immigration though because that that is a federal responsibility mm -hmm. and you were clearly articulating when I looked at the interviews from you last year that you knew housing was a problem yet it yes. took until the last month or so for you to act so I go back to the question of do you bear some responsibility here uh, well, of course we all bear responsibility this is a challenge that we have to work on all together but from 2017 onwards, we put forward a national housing strategy that has been uh, making sure and securing more homes on people. The spike in temporary arrivals over the past two years, a total up, uh, upwards of two million people, um, need to be responded to and that's why there are very specific challenges that we are addressing in partnership with municipalities uh, and provinces but also with international partners to make sure uh, that we're managing that flow right. We, we need to continue to protect immigration, we need continued immigration in this country but we have to protect the integrity of our system and that's very much what we're working on. 
I want to move on to foreign and defense policy, something that really has played a, a significant role in domestic politics this year, perhaps more so than usual, with all the crisis that the Canadian Armed Forces have been called on to help with. Uh, you say a Canadian citizen murdered on our soil by a foreign government, concern about Iranian senior regime officials intimidating Can Canadians, concerns about China uh, intimidating the diaspora population here as well. When you look at the national security picture for the country, what do you see? Uh, I see an incredibly complex world in which Canada, being a country of laws, a country of defense of the international rules-based order, has a more important role to play than many other countries around the world. If you look over the past number of years, whether it's been uh, with China and the two Michaels, whether it was the, uh, the challenges we had with Saudi Arabia, whether it's the challenges we have right now with India, whether it's ongoing challenges uh, with Iran around PS752 and uh, foreign interference on the ground, uh, continued challenges with Russia and their violation of the UN uh, Charter and the international rules-based order in engaging in invading Ukraine. Every step of the way, Canada has doubled down on our values and on the rules-based order. We have shown that we stand up uh, for what is right and what is our system of justice. And we have stayed strong at a time where bigger countries and countries that play by different rules have tried really hard to impact us. And we're continuing to defend ourselves in all the right ways. Do you think that part of the reason why some of those bigger countries or our allies aren't listening is our lack of investment in foreign policy and defense? Canada has continued to step up as a member of NATO, as an international partner, whether with our Indo-Pacific strategy or things like uh, investing in, in vaccine facilities in South Africa or uh, being part of, of significant investments uh, across Eastern Europe uh, in nuclear plants and things like that. Canada is a very engaged international partner and countries around the world continue to look to us as one of those countries that's always going to stand up and defend the rules. That's not what I hear from our allies. They point to us having three days worth of ammunition if a war to break out, to not having tanks that function and those that are overseas in Latvia and the government has not made efforts to replace them. They point to a billion dollars coming in defense cuts. They point to you allegedly privately saying that we'll never hit 2% of GDP. Okay, well, those, those examples are all specifically on defense. What I'm talking about is the large international frame. But even on defense, uh, we have, since 2017, stepped up with about 70% 70, 70 increases on, on our defense spending. We're going to continue to do more and more in defense. We just announced a $38 billion NORAD modernization. We're stepping up with F-35s. Uh, yes, we've had to make up for lost time when under the Conservative government, defense spending dipped below 1% for the only but time. But you've been in power for eight years. Mm -hmm. You said you'd never buy the F-35s, which was part of the delay there. And your own chief of the defense staff is saying that if there were to be a war tomorrow, Canada would be in big trouble. Yeah. Isn't that on you after eight but years in everyone power? Everyone is in, in big trouble because we have been shipping, all of us as allies, as NATO allies, shipping massive amounts of ammunition to Ukraine right now because Ukraine is on the front line of defending not just their own territory, but their international rules-based order. And that's why we are so unequivocal on Ukraine. And quite frankly, even yes, as we're fixing those procurement challenges to make sure we are getting more ammunition for Canada for training, 
uh, continuing to be there for Ukraine, despite the hesitations uh, by the Conservative Party, uh, is the best way to protect uh, our future as a country and our, our, our system of democracy. But Canadian soldiers are looking at this and saying we can't protect our country right now. We are continuing to do that. We are continuing to invest in our front lines, in our equipment for our military, as, as people expect us to. But we're doing it in a responsible way. On the national security front, why do you think that we're the focus of so much foreign interference, whether it was the killing of a Canadian citizen by India, whether it is the Chinese government interfering with the diaspora and trying to interfere with our elections, which I know Russia has done as well, um, or whether we're talking about the Iranian regime intimidating people here, the FBI saying it's a concern even for them. Mm -hmm. Why is it that we are subject to so many simultaneous significant national security threats? Canada is one of the countries in the world with the largest diasporas from all those countries uh, you mentioned. We are an incredibly um, diverse country where we've made those differences into an incredible source of strength. But one of the fundamental challenges we have right now uh, is ensuring that we are protecting all Canadians, including uh, from their home countries that maybe do want to interfere with them. And that's why, uh, as a country that is standing up strong for democracy and the rule of law, we're a target to countries like Russia uh, and Iran who want to destabilize democracies, and we're seeing it around the world. So why haven't you established things yet then, like a foreign agents registry, which has been recommended for almost a year now, um, changes to deporting Iranian officials who are here. The CBSA is deporting too, but it's been very slow. One of the individuals being deported who somehow got into Canada despite your changes in the law is the former head of the morality police, the same force that was killing women for refusing to wear a hijab. Yeah. No, obviously that's unacceptable and these are things that we are working on, but those are sort of the next steps that we are right now working on, including the foreign agent registry. But we have been acting on this since 2015. We brought in uh, a national security uh, a committee of parliamentarians. For the first time, there's oversight by all different parties over our national security. They say the they're not getting transparency. They are getting the highest level of clearance. They are getting all the necessary tools to oversee everything that is being done. We move forward on an election panel uh, of top civil servants and security agencies to ensure the integrity of the elections, as they did in 2019-2021. We've moved forward with significant investments in encountering foreign interference. We even led on that in 2018 uh, at the G7 meeting here in Canada where we created the rapid response mechanism that the G7 relies on in terms of uh, electoral and domestic interference. So we've done a lot, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot more to do, and that's what we're continuing to do. I want to talk to you about terrorism in, in this country. I've been speaking with a lot of national security sources, and what they tell me is... And these are people with a lot of experience uh, domestically and overseas with terrorism. The, the threat picture they're seeing right now is terrifying. That it is a combination of ISIS once again trying to radicalize young people and neo-Nazi groups like Adam Waffen also trying to do the same. And it's a bit of this perfect storm. We recently heard about uh, a young man in Ottawa, a 15-year-old who's been charged on terrorism charges by the RCMP, including possession of an explosive device, or pardon me, of explosive substances. And the RCMP put out an actual press release and said, this, there's been five cases of people under the age of 18 facing terrorism charges or terrorism peace bonds yeah. 
just since this summer. What are you being briefed here on, on what's happening? Oh, that it is very, very serious. We have taken, we have taken the issue of, of terrorism incredibly seriously from the beginning, uh, whether it's empowering our national security agencies, ensuring that there's oversight that is encouraging them and making sure they're doing uh, more and, and uh, getting that accountability. What we're seeing particularly right now uh, with the rise of anti-Semitism uh, linked to uh, what's happening overseas right now is terrifying and it is something that we absolutely have to act on and we are acting on. We, the arrest on the weekend was an extremely important moment uh, where we're demonstrating that we're doing everything we can to keep uh, the Jewish community in this country safe and we'll continue to keep all communities safe in this country. What do you think of some of the protests that we've seen here in malls uh, outside Jewish businesses? There was one here in Ottawa surrounding uh, the Santa photo booth where kids were taking their pictures. These are people protesting in support of Gaza. But some people feel those protests are crossing a line. What do you think? Uh, first of all, the, the freedom to protest, the freedom to express their political views is extraordinarily important in Canada. We will always, always defend that. Um, the lines get approached and crossed when they are actually targeting individual Canadians who have no more responsibility for what's going on overseas than, than that, they, uh, that they happen to be Jewish, for example. That's unacceptable. Um, you know, protesting and sharing the legitimate aspirations for the Palestinian people, absolutely knock yourself out. We should be doing that and free to do that everywhere and anywhere. But the specifically making other Canadians feel unsafe, whether it's uh, Jewish kids on campus, uh, whether it's, uh, whether it's you know, families wanting to celebrate Christmas with their kids at a photo booth uh, and making to feel guilty because uh, the horrific fact that there are kids dying overseas uh, in Gaza uh, is, is something that, that, that people can be made aware of. But the aggressive and the underlying violence in um, making other people feel unsafe in this country isn't part of free protesting, of freedom of speech or, or lawful protest. Do you think the police should do something about that? Uh, I think the police need to make sure that they are uh, arresting people who are engaged in acts of violence uh, and who are breaking the law, whether it's a, a sound ordinance or, or uh, a uh, trespassing. Um, these are things that we do have to take seriously because they snowball. We see maybe there's you know, 50 people showing up to peacefully express their support for uh, a legitimate and real concern that they have, that there are lots of them out there. But the one person who then gets encouraged or incited to break a window or uh, attack someone or, or, or pull someone's uh, clothing off or, or, or go at them, um, that's something we all have a responsibility to be thoughtful about and to remember who we are as Canadians. We are the country in the world that does diversity better than just about anyone else. And our capacity to actually hear and understand each other's fears and concerns and, and grief and anguish and connect with each other as people and not as, uh, as caricatures of what they are and the, the dehumanization that goes on, on on both sides, whether it's around Islamophobia or anti-Semitism, is something that we have to make sure we're remembering 
who we are as Canadians, that we, that we are open to each other, that we feel each other's pain even if we don't come from the same perspective. And the quicker we can get to remembering who we are as Canadians, the more we're going to be able to be useful in spreading that peace and, and security around the world. One last question for you. You changed your position on, on Israel. Uh, over the course of the last couple of months. You were initially very pro-Israeli, Israel's right to defend itself, um, and you've since decided that a ceasefire is, is necessary. What led you to make that decision in your change in position? Let me be very clear. We haven't changed our position. From the very beginning, we talked about Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with humanitarian law and the need to protect civilian lives. What we've seen over the past nine, ten weeks is uh, an evolving humanitarian catastrophe that requires us to continually shift in our approaches. We, we were among the first countries to call for humanitarian pauses uh, and we're now uh, calling like much of the rest of the world uh, for work towards a ceasefire, but a ceasefire that can't be one-sided, a ceasefire that continues to recognize that Israel has the right to defend itself, that Hamas must lay down its arms, release hostages, not use humans as shields, uh, and understand that there is no future uh, for Hamas in the governance of Gaza, particularly as we move towards a two-state solution where you have a peaceful, secure Israel alongside a peaceful, secure, viable Palestinian state without Hamas uh, in charge. That's where we need to get to. That has been Canada's position from the very beginning, and that continues to be our position. We are responding as necessary to events as they unfold as time goes on, but our position remains exactly the same. Can you have a ceasefire with Hamas that doesn't in some way legitimize them? There was a ceasefire that Hamas broke on October 7th. There's so been a ceasefire since 2021. Because, because the only path towards peace is getting hostages released, getting humanitarian aid in, and removing Hamas as the governing body of Gaza. That's the only way forward, and that is, that is, those are the conditions we're putting in towards a ceasefire. Prime Minister, I know that you have a lot to do. We appreciate you sitting down with us and answering questions for Canadians, and uh, we'll see what 2024 brings. We shall, but thank you very much for taking the time, Mercedes. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.